Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. It was, it was interesting at, at the age of 40 now, I was up kind of putting the final touches on my sermon last night, and I just kept getting these promptings from the Holy Spirit every time I put a little note in my, my document that I'm working off of. I just got this like jolt of, of clarity and expression. It was like something outside of me was telling me that, hey, this is what you need to say in, in the sermon tomorrow, and it turned out that it was just my neighbors lighting fireworks off, so. <laughs> You guys are either going to get like a really weird 4th of July kind of Holy Spirit sermon or something that's pretty, pretty good according to the text. So I hope you found that uh, passage. And Bill, thanks for those comments this morning as, as we think about um, just 4th of July and our independence. And there's a lot of correlation to the gospel and the freedom that we have because of Christ. Uh, it's just such a huge blessing for us to, to worship God in this place and the nation that we live freely without fear of persecution. And um, whatever you guys are doing with your families this afternoon and however you're celebrating uh, your 4th of July, um, just pray that you would uh, really treasure and honor those who have sacrificed for the freedoms that we have in this nation and, and that it would also um, inspire you and motivate you to, uh, to worship and to, to use your freedoms wisely as Christians. So. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 16 through 25 this morning. Uh, Most of you are probably familiar with the story of, famous story by Robert Louis Stevenson, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I've I've gone back and I've read this at least a few times just in the last couple of years now. I think I've used it for a sermon illustration in the past as well. It's a very dark and terrifying story when you read it. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, of course, was this distinguished, uh, highly moral man of great character and ethics. And everybody, certainly if you perceived Dr. Jekyll from the outside, you would come away with the conclusion that here is a man who stands with, with very few faults. But Dr. Jekyll knew himself. He was self aware of his weaknesses, and he knew that he was actually plagued with faults. There was one fault that he had that was, was bigger and more plaguing, perhaps, than the rest of them. He had a, a self-awareness that even though he projected a moral man of character on the outside, there was a war going on with his desires on the inside. He struggled with passions, sinful passions. And the story goes on to relate it. And here's what it says. Speaking in the first person, Stevenson writes about um, uh, Dr. Jekyll here. I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence, it came about that I concealed my pleasures and that when I reached years of reflection, began to look around me and take stock of the progress and the position that I had made in the world, I stood already committed to a profound, and listen to what he says, a profound duplicity in life. What Jekyll describes is this perennial war that's going on inside of his heart. His members were at war and struggling with one another. It says, I thus drew steadily near to the truth 
by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such dreadful shipwreck. And here's his conclusion, that man is not truly one, but truly two. Dr. Jekyll was a man who was trapped in hypocrisy. He struggled wanting to be somebody on the outside and knowing that he had deep passions, sinful passions on the inside. And he struggled so much with this, he wanted nothing more than just totally to give in to one or the other. If he was going to be Dr. Jekyll, he wanted to be Dr. Jekyll without the lures of the passions inside of him. If he was going to be somebody else, he wanted to be that person without the, the distraction, the obstacle of, of trying to be this moral, upright person. And so as a doctor and a chemist, he, he makes a potion. It allows him to fully embrace either his sinful passions without restriction or his upright passions without any inclination toward, toward evil. When he, when he creates this potion, he takes it and he turns into Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde, of course, is, is this terribly wicked and sinful person. And, and here's what he describes as Mr. Hyde. He says, I knew myself at the very first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. As Mr. Hyde, he says, the devil had long been caged and he came out finally roaring. And the awful thing happens when you read the story, of course, at first, Dr. Jekyll takes the potion to become Mr. Hyde, but the tolerance effect sets in. And soon he discovers that he doesn't need the potion anymore to turn into Mr. Hyde. Now he needs the potion as Mr. Hyde to turn back into Dr. Jekyll. And we're all left wondering who's going to win out in the end. Will Jekyll even survive the passions of the flesh of Mr. Hyde? And what Dr. Jekyll finally realizes is that he was more wicked and sinful than he ever dared to believe about himself. He just couldn't see it. He couldn't look into his heart and see the passions of the flesh that were there the whole time. And some people read the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and they, they come away with the conclusion that, hey, this is the Christian life. Harold's got a, there's a good Harold and there's a bad Harold. What I need to do is I need to suppress, restrain the bad Harold, and I need to function out of the good Harold. That's the real me. Or, or perhaps you've seen the caricature of, of the Christian man who's got the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other. Angels whispering good thoughts and, and good motivations into this ear. The demons whispering bad thoughts and evil motivations in the other. And, and who's going to win out? Which voice are you going to ultimately listen to? And, and honestly, in the Christian life, there is some truth to that. But there's more than that in the Christian life. There's something much deeper than just this good, bad play back and forth in our hearts and in our souls. Down in, in verse 24 of this passage in Galatians 5, you can see it. Uh, look down at this text. I want to read just this one verse. Verse 24, Galatians 5 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In that verse, by the time we get to it, those verb tenses you're going to pay close attention to, that changes everything about the Christian. That changes everything about how we approach choices, decisions. 
and the passions that rage within us. Before we get too far into this passage, <clears throat> remember now, the Apostle Paul is at the end of, of Galatians, chapter five and chapter six, are very practical in their application. Whereas chapters one through four in Galatians were doctrinal and primarily informational about the truth of the gospel, as Paul brings this letter to a close, he's gonna bring us practical application um, imperative command after command on how we are to live with the truth that was taught at the beginning of the, of the book. And the dominant theme in the book of Galatians has been, we've, we've been seeing this theme, is, is freedom. The Apostle Paul is, is the great liberator. The gospel that he brings is the liberating truth, the redeeming truth of salvation in Christ Jesus. And in the last couple of weeks, what we saw is that this freedom is very fragile. Freedom on the one hand can lead some people into uh, legalism, legalism if we're not careful to protect it. On the other hand, other people will take their freedoms in Christ and leave, live totally licentious lives. I'm free in Christ, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because my sins are forgiven. And so freedom is a, a difficult topic in the body of Christ. Freedom is, is fragile, freedom is dangerous. On the one hand, we don't let it launch us into legalism and slip into that sin. On the other hand, we don't just live licentiously however we want to live. And, and now as he gets toward the end of chapter five, he's gonna apply this Christian principle of freedom to walking in the spirit. How do you know what freedoms to restrain and what freedoms can be rightfully practiced in your life? How do you know when to address the Peters of Galatians chapter two and when to come across with, hey, Use your freedoms responsibly. Hinder your freedoms instead. And largely what the Apostle Paul is going to tell us is that that decision, those moment-by-moment, step-by-step decisions are made by relying on the Holy Spirit, by walking with the third person of the Trinity and allowing him to guide our thoughts, restrain our freedoms, enjoy our liberation in Christ. And so he ends this with a lot on the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Owen has a great thought about sin in the Christian life, and it is so appropriate for today's passage. He said this, I've shared it with you before. He said, be busy about killing sin, or sin will be busy about killing you. How do we walk as mature Christians in this thing called the Christian life? Led by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the question I wanna answer. Look at number one this morning and number one in your outline. The Apostle Paul is gonna tell us this. The Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a battle. Well, look back at verse 16, and I'll read through verse 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Every Christian soldier who lives a victorious life in Christ needs to know their enemy. Uh, Sun Chu was a, a famous Chinese um, military strategist, and he says this. You might have heard it before. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Now, Paul clearly identifies the enemy of the Christian in this passage. 
and it goes by the name of the flesh. But it's not just the flesh that we fight. Understand the adjectives related to that term flesh here. He doesn't say just fight the flesh. He says fight the desires of the flesh. Or perhaps your translation says the passions of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is probably the best English translation. It's in the King James. And unfortunately, our our English doesn't capture this phrase, desires of the flesh, well. We don't don't have um, a counterpart to this that relates well to the Greek. God created us each with desires. We are all created in the image of God. And as image bearers, he has given us desires, godly desires. All of us have a desire for food. That's a God-given desire. However, if you totally give yourself to an all-consuming passion for food, that desire is ultimately going to lead to gluttony, which is a sin. All of us have a desire for sex in our life. God created that in us. It's a healthy, it's a God-given desire. However, if we totally give ourselves completely and utterly to sexual desires, we will find ourselves in sexual sin that will cripple us and enslave us for the rest of our life. The Greek word for desire here, it's, the Greek word is typically, it's thumia. Here it has an added prefix to it. It's epithumia. That makes it even stronger. When you translate this word in, in English, it should say something like uh, over-desire. Maybe a, even a super-desire. It's beyond simple human want. Epithumia is an all-consuming, dangerous desire something that we have a passion for and that we long for, like we long for nothing else in our lives. Tim Keller's got a, a great thought on these epithumias, these over-desires. He says, the main problem our heart has is not so much the desire for bad things, but an over-desire for good things. Listen, at the root of, of all sin is desire. Another way to say this might be this. The greatest conflict that you will ever experience in your heart, in your life, is the conflict inside of you, not necessarily outside of you. Uh, Sin is a heart issue, not just a head issue, because we all battle sinful desires in our hearts. And there's a principle that text just before we get any further, and that's this. Know where the battle starts against sin in in the Christian walk and Christian life. It starts with our human desires. Principle number two, the war within you war is a battle of kingdoms. The war within you war is a battle of kingdoms. Every single day within every single Christian, there is a war raging within. Every single day, there is a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde battling for control over your hearts. And of course, the purpose of war is control. Who's going to win out for the control over your heart, for the control over your desires? Galatians 5 is all about this war that is raging in our hearts. The terms that Paul uses to describe it are flesh versus spirit. The other terms that you see in the Bible in the New Testament is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. God's will, man's will. Spiritual impulses, natural impulses. Flesh versus the spirit. And there's a very hard phrase at the end of verse 17 that really gets down to exactly what Paul is trying to tell us here. If you look down at at verse 17, toward the end of the verse, it's going to say something like this. For these are opposed to each other 
to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The Christian should no longer act according to his own will, according to your own wants and your own desires. A Christian who has been redeemed by Christ dies to their will, dies to their desires and wishes. Now you live completely for the will of God. Now you live completely for the kingdom of God in his control over your life instead of for the kingdom of man in your control. But make, make no mistake about this. When Paul gives us this phrase in verse 17, he is giving you one of two options, and there is no middle ground. You are either living for the kingdom of God and controlled by the Spirit of God, or you are living for yourself and controlled by your desire for your own kingdom and for your own, your own control over your heart. You are either letting God sit upon the throne of your heart, or you are taking the place of his throne that he has secured and given to you. There is no neutral territory in the fight of the flesh versus the spirit. And it is to be taken seriously. Principle number three, the battle is not one and done. The battle is constant. The entire Christian life is a battle. It's a struggle. And Paul wants us to know that so that we might be more inclined, more dependent, and more aware to walk in the spirit on a daily basis. A command that Paul uses is verse 16. But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the spirit. And this is simple enough to understand, but it is profound for our understanding of Christian growth, especially in the community. Paul didn't say that the Christian life is a race. Here, at least, you might find that other places, New Testament. He didn't say it was a sprint. He didn't say you were going to reach some point, some pinnacle in your life, and everything would be downhill from there. He didn't say you're going to reach 40 and then start going downhill. He said it's a walk. What does that mean? It means if you're going to live by the Holy Spirit and by the power of God and depend on him, it is just going to be one step at a time, one day at a time, one moment at a time, consistently checking your desires in your will against the desires of God, in God's will, especially as, as it's revealed in his word. And this isn't the only metaphor that Paul will use for the Christian life, but it tells us at least this, and it, this is something that we need to just be aware of in the body of Christ. Christian growth is sometimes very slow and methodical. Um, Christian growth is not something that when you trust Christ, and of course there's, there's examples when we see differently, but but most people will grow as a Christian at a very slow pace, one thing at a time, one decision at a time. We can't expect a, a mature Christian, we can't expect any Christian to all of a sudden start functioning under God's will and, and be this perfect Christian all the time, during every day, no matter what the situation is. What we really should expect is, is people just walking this path of the Christian, Christian life. We really should expect moments of growth through the times of suffering, maybe more than anything else. And so we have sensitivity and patience with other Christians because they're along this, this path and walking just like all of us are. The Christian life is a, is a constant battle. Growth doesn't happen on our timetable, it happens on God's timetable. We don't set the agenda for the Holy Spirit, the agenda is set by the Holy Spirit for us. We need to be sensitive to that. 
Number two in your outline. Fight the sin on the inside before it spreads to the outside. Fight sin on the inside before it spreads to the outside. And I love how Bill read this passage this morning. When he got to the list of sins in verses 19 through 21, he read that very quickly, if you listen to his pace. And what he was trying to do is, is to emphasize the fact that the works of the flesh, there are many of them. There's example after example. There are things that we struggle with. Some of these things are obvious. Some are not so obvious. But there are many works of the flesh that all people will struggle with. And typically when we look at passages like these, this is not the only time you'll see the Apostle Paul or even in the New Testament lists of sins being used. Uh, Romans 1 perhaps is, is probably one of the most famous. Even Jesus will use list of sins in the Gospels and talk about uh, the need for trust and dependence on him. But if we look specifically at this passage, Almost every commentator identifies about four different categories for sins. The first category, starting in verse 19, is sexual sin. It's given three descriptions. Look down at your text. Works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The second category is religious sin. Paul mentions idolatry and and witchcraft. But the third section of sin, if if you're going to categorize it, is by far um, the biggest most prevalent in this passage. Martin Luther actually calls these the sins of sect, the sins of divisions, relationships, groups, perhaps even in the body of Christ. And there are eight specific things mentioned in this group. Three in the first group, two in the second group, eight in the next, and then finally two sins related to alcohol, just controlling yourself in that arena. Did Paul have a specific order to these sins? Did he list them in a a certain way for a specific reason? Uh, Most people say no. Listen to one commentator, he says this, the seeming chaotic arrangement of these terms is reflective of the chaotic nature of evil. This is to be contrasted with the oneness of the spirit that you have later on in Galatians 5. But remember, Galatians 5 and 6 is almost all about the practical application of the gospel in community. Paul just spent almost all of chapter 3 and 4 talking about our freedom in Christ and how it relates to being a new family in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters walking along this path, this journey together in family and in community. It's not personal sin that Paul is highlighting so much in this, this list of eight, the sins of sect. Although all sin is personal. And it's not the destructive nature of sin to the individual necessarily that Paul is pointing out in this list either, although we all know that, that sin is destructive no matter what it is. More than anything else, I think Paul is most concerned with sins that affect the community in the body of Christ in this list. It's interesting when uh, Brandy and I picked up and moved our family to, to Kansas. We lived in Wichita for about five and a half years. Uh, church moved us. They actually helped us go from <clears throat> where we were in, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, to Wichita. And, and they didn't, wasn't a big church at all. It was kind of a, a rural church, a lot of farmers, and uh, just, just good home life out in the country north of Wichita. 
And so they, couldn't, they didn't hire a moving van to come pick us, pick us up and load up our stuff and take it over there. Instead, they sent down a couple farmers with a dually truck and a horse trailer. <laughs> and they loaded all of our stuff in this big, giant horse trailer, and, and we didn't have any, anywhere to go. We didn't even have a house or apartment. And so they asked another farmer to open up his barn where he could keep everything in that horse trailer completely enclosed. And so our stuff sat in a horse trailer in Farmer Ed's barn for about six months until we could find a place to live. And we just packed this horse trailer super tight with all of our, all of our stuff and lived in a, another elder's basement, again, for six months. And, and one of the things that we made sure to keep before we made that move, probably the most, one of the most valuable possessions that we had, was this really awesome, you ladies are gonna love me here, it was this uh, French door, I don't know how many cubic feet refrigerator with the freezer pull-out drawer at the bottom. This thing was amazing. I said, I don't care what else we keep when we move to Kansas, we're keeping the refrigerator. It was a great refrigerator. And we thought, I was actually talking to Brandon about this earlier in the week uh, at the office. We thought when we packed the refrigerator in the horse trailer, knowing that it was gonna be in somebody's barn for a length of time, that it was totally and completely empty. We thought we made the final check. Six months later, <laughs> July in Kansas, the horse trailer pulls up in our driveway and we unload it. One of the very last things that we pull out of there is that refrigerator. Plug that baby in. And somewhere along the path of jostling it and trying to get it out of the horse trailer, there was just a tiny little opening of that door that wiggled and the smell sent everybody to high heaven when they got a whiff of it. We left one small bag of frozen broccoli in the, in the freezer part of it. The refrigerator didn't make it in our house for about a week after that. We aired it out with baking soda. It sat on the back, back porch, but all the farmers put stuff on their back porch. It wasn't really a big deal in Kansas. <laughs> Why am I telling you this story? Um, the littlest division, the littlest sin in a church family can lead to huge, massive problems in the body of Christ. One little thing can lead to a stench that a church will experience. Have you ever been through a church split before? Have you ever experienced the, the pain of going through a divorce in your family? Or somebody that you know? that has suffered through that? Almost all of it will come down to one little sin, one conflict that wasn't handled in a, in a biblical way instead. I want you to look down at, at verse 20. In this list of eight things after sorcery, the Apostle Paul lists enmity and strife. And that, that first word, enmity, is it's technically in the plural. You'll see the singular usage for it in Romans 8, verse 7, where it talks about a sinner's enmity between them and God. But this one is in the plural, and F.F. F. Bruce reminds us of something uh, concerning enmity or what he calls hostility. He says that Satan is the one who cherishes hostile thoughts, and Satan performs the hostile act. Anytime we embrace enmity between a brother or sister in Christ, we hold on to it or we anchor down in bitterness, harboring enmity, between another person, it will fester, and that is exactly what Satan wants. 
Hostility and strife, enmity and strife are two peas in a pod that begin this section of sins that will apply to a church family or a community. The second word, strife, is literally in the Greek, it's um, contentious temper. To be a strifeful person is to be a person of, of contentious temper. And typically in the New Testament, strife is the cause of enmity. It's what fuels enmity and, and of course, leads to division. But, but if there's a domino effect and if there's any part of this list of sins that I could say, okay, this one happens, then this happens, and then that as a domino effect, as a train effect of, of here's where devastation comes into the body, it would be the three things that are finally mentioned in verse 20. And the last three things in the ESV, your, your text might be a little different, it says this, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Church conflicts, family conflicts, community conflicts, are all rooted in sinful comparisons and rivalries with other people. Phil's just not as gifted and smart as Mike is, and he's way more gifted and smart than Jared is. And so we're gonna take care of Phil, but we're not gonna treat this person as valuable in the body of Christ. Pride is at the root of these things, and it will fester and grow into divisions and dissensions that will absolutely wreak havoc on a body. When that happens, when rivalries begin to emerge, soon enough you will see dissension urging its way into a body, or leaking into a body. And when you see dissension happening with a group of leaders, it is just time before it comes to the layman. It is just time before it spreads like an infection and a plague to the rest of the people. Finally, the result is division. And all of a sudden, we're picking sides. I'm with Robert on this one. I like his idea on the church budget. I'm with Jared on this one. I like his idea in the church budget. And all of a sudden, here we are picking sides. Who are you with? Who's the person who seems to be the more, more godly? Who's the person who seems to be the less godly? We favor one person over another. Division typically occurs because one person fails to address conflict in a biblical manner. Relational conflict is, is not like, I'm from Packer country up north, it's not like cheese. It doesn't get better with age or neglect. When you have relational conflicts, you must deal with them definitively and quickly in order to move on through it in a godly way. I can think of a, a thousand different things that I would rather do than address a conflict or a difficult conversation with a person. But at the end of the day, I hope that I'm gonna choose that route because I know the short-term pain of dealing with one difficult conversation is nothing compared to the long-term pain of letting that conflict fester and grow from a rivalry to dissensions to major divisions in the body of Christ. All of it can be prevented, all of it, if people are walking with the Holy Spirit exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul's gonna tell you what the opposite of experiencing this in the body of Christ looks like. However, we gotta be committed to walking by the Holy Spirit. Number three, number three in your outline. Spiritual battles are won with spiritual power. Spiritual battles are won with spiritual power. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with with its passions and desires. Now, first I want to point out the obvious comparison. Paul contrasts works of the flesh with fruit of the Spirit, and he mixes his metaphors here. If he started talking about works of the flesh, why didn't he end and talk about the same thing, about kind of what we've seen before in Galatians, about freedom? Here's something that you work for, here's something that you're given for free, or a gift, or a grace. Instead, the contrast is between work and fruit. If Paul was going to use fruit as his dominant metaphor, why wouldn't he have talked about a, an empty harvest, perhaps, when, think, when thinking of the flesh? Or why wouldn't he leave it in the agricultural framework? He mixes his metaphors for a reason. He wants the contrast to stand out all the more. If you are living according to the works of the flesh, they are diametrically opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. You are not even on the same wavelength. You cannot do both at the same time. It is either one or the other. And so he's bringing out the strength of the comparison. Second, most commentators point this out. Paul doesn't talk about nine different fruits individually. He talks about one fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit with nine different flavors. What that means is you can't have one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit without fully embracing the other aspects as well. Some people are, treasure themselves about being, being a kind person. In reality, they just never loved anybody enough to, to give them the hard truth at times. If you're a very kind person, but you're not bold enough to, to lovingly tell somebody the difficult thing, you don't have the fruit of the spirit of kindness that's a false kindness. It's not true kindness that the Holy Spirit brings. In order to have true kindness, you have to have true love. That needs to be practiced in your life. Some people are known for being very gentle. Gentle, gentle people. And they go home at the end of the day and all they do is complain to their wife or to their husband about what Michael was doing at work today. To Michael's face, gentle, kind, was everywhere. They go home, the wife, the spouse is saying, there's no joy in your heart. You're talking so critically, how can you have any joy whatsoever? And and the reality is, is that gentleness was not a true gentleness. It was a false gentleness because it wasn't accompanied by a true joy. In order to have one of these things, you've got to have all of these things. And listen, there's going to be areas with the fruit of the Spirit where we're we're going to struggle more than others. But all of us, this is beyond personality. This is beyond strengths and weaknesses. These are things that we need to pursue because they are the characteristics of Christ. And they are are a, a fruit of what comes, a benefit of what comes from being related to God through a relationship to the Holy Spirit. How do we, uh, how do we apply this text? And one of the ways we're going to do it is through the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. But I want to talk about just two things as we close, because there, there's so many more things that we could say about just a pivotal passage. <clears throat> Sometime we'll do a, a sermon series and just go through one, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit uh, after the other. It'll be a sermon series in and, in and of itself. It's so good. But if this passage would have stopped at verse 23, all of us would assume the Christian life is a lot like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
If verse 24, if you didn't read in that at the end of this passage, we would say, hey, you've got two options. It's either the works of the flesh or it's the fruit of the Spirit. Pick one. At any given moment, you're operating from the Spirit, or at any given moment, you're operating from the flesh. There's a good side, there's a bad side to all people. Sometimes the bad wins out, sometimes the good works out. Verse 24 changes everything. It is the framework, it is the underlying motivation behind everything else that the Apostle Paul just said. And so I want to read it again. It says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And notice very quickly, there is no command in verse 24. It's not us. We don't crucify the flesh. It's simply a truth from God's word. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh through your relationship to Christ. The only command in this entire passage is is very clear. It's verse 16. Walk in the spirit. But there's no command here. There's only a theological truth that's related to the gospel. And that brings me to the first point I want to close with. Number one, victorious Christian living. Uh, Next slide for me, guys, if it's going to go. Clicker's not working. Victorious Christian living is the result of understanding your identity. Victorious Christian living is a result of understanding your identity in Christ. And that is an identity that is received, not achieved. Your identity in Christ is through Christ, because of Christ, and by Christ. It has been established, directed, and given to you as a free gift because of what he has done. Our identity is received from God. It is not achieved by us. When we trust in the crucified Jesus, his death and his resurrection on the cross, he brings us into a brand new family. He gives us a belonging into a community, into a family of Christ. And because because we are Christians, It doesn't mean that we are no longer tempted by the flesh, by the passions, the desires of the flesh. It means that the flesh no longer rules us. We are no longer enslaved to it. Galatians 5 is not saying, stop sinning. Start living your life according to the Holy Spirit. That's morality. That's just good advice. It's totally distinct from good news. It's saying, if you are sinning, in the flesh, don't you know that it's been crucified? Don't you understand what took place the second you placed your faith in Christ? The desires, the passions of the flesh no longer rule over you, they no longer master you. The question of identity is not who am I? The question of identity for the Christian is whose am I? We are bought with a price and therefore we glorify God in our bodies manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. Galatians, you are believers who belong to Christ. That changes everything about how you live a victorious Christian life. And every time we talk about victory over sin, here's what we will do at Tulsa Bible Church. What's the truth of the gospel? What's your identity in Christ because of the gospel? What has Christ done for you, positionally, that you could not do for yourself? The struggle in the Christian life is thoroughly, deeply entrenched with understanding who you are in Christ and who you belong to. Number two, if you're an unbeliever, sin is a battle you must fight, but you can never win. 
If you are a believer, sin is a battle you must fight, but you can never lose. For an unbeliever, sin is a battle you must fight, but you will never win. But for the believer, sin is a battle you must fight, but you, will all, you cannot lose it. You will always win because it doesn't depend on you. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, because of the truth of the gospel, the flesh is not the last story for Christians. The sinful passions, the desires that we have inside of our hearts because of our sinful nature is not the end. The sinful passions have been overcome by Christ's death on the cross. He has overcome the evil one, and the one who is within us is stronger than the evil one. We have an identity that is thoroughly rooted in Christ, and we live a victorious battle, not one that is defeated day by day in our sinful struggles, but one who has overcome the strong one. The stronger one has redeemed us and set us free. Understanding and appropriating that is our responsibility. Depending on Christ completely is our responsibility. Growing in our identity because of the gospel is how we live the faithful Christian life. And it will lead to the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. And if you guys are uh, serving the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, deacons, elders, I encourage you to head back there in just a second. We'll pass out the elements. Father in heaven, thank you um, again just for the, the truth of the liberation, the freedom that we have in you. Thank you for what you have done for us, that the flesh has been crucified the second we placed our faith in you. Lord, help us to understand that, to know that, and to walk with a new identity and a belonging in a brand new family because of the truth of the gospel. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.